Hi, listeners. Due to some truly incredible scheduling issues for the past month, we don't have a new multi-person episode for you this week. What we do have is two book excerpts full of world building written by Ian. Those are the two books Erisene was assigned to read by Frymeath way back when they were still trying to understand each other as people when Erisene was working for him in his library. So, you should be back with a new episode next week, unless the shadow corruption gets us. The Aeon Expedition Logbook Complete Edition by Isandre Is Scoline of the Island of Foimia. The 300th Anniversary Special Edition. Published 30 years pre launch, 300 second printing overall of the logbook. A note written in neat elven script on extremely high quality paper is tucked into the front. Erisene. You'll note the very different tone of this book compared to the other. While this one is obviously one individual's point of view by its very nature, do not be mistaken. All books carry with them the perspectives of their authors, regardless of whether they are a journal of adventure or an academic text. No one is truly free of bias. I am, perhaps, too thorough an example. Signed, Frymeath. Day 1 21st day of warmth's caress. It appears the elvish travel books I purchased before I left for here have misled me. The country of Aea is only nominally elvish. The ruling families are certainly elvish and have been for some time. But the underclass, the merchants, the farmers, many, if not all, are human. There are a number of half-elves as well, and it is due to them I am able to blend in. There are even a large number about my age, just past the century mark. The product of a fad among the elite for human prostitutes. The wild oats bore quite a harvest to stretch a metaphor. I have spent my first day in the markets, orienting myself to this place and its culture. There is an incredible abundance for such an arid place. What I am told is the bounty of hidden oases. The fruit is delicious. I was most surprised, however, by the gorgeous cut flowers and the abundance of fine honey. All of my questions about their origins were left unanswered, despite my most earnest and charming efforts. A shame, as it is the best honey I have ever tasted, and likely ever will. Now, to find a guide, so my journey may begin in earnest. Day 4, 24th day of warmth's caress. Tomorrow, we head out into the desert proper. My escorts will be an elderly human, a young elvish woman, likely around 400, it's rude to ask, and a health elf child nearing 50, as he so proudly told me. All are old hands at this, long-time desert guides, or so they tell me. Then again, so did the other guides. 
even after I paid several of them the equivalent of an expedition fee just to ensure they told me the truth. They're a family, too. The Elf is one of the nomadic groups who originally founded this kingdom, from a small village dedicated to those older ways. The human grew up in a similar village near there, adopted, just one of three survivors of a large traveling merchant caravan that was lost during a severe sandstorm. Native creatures of the desert in all ways, from the way they walk at ease and with grace on loose sand to the way they squint into the bright light and see easily without the benefit of a hat or hand to shade their eyes. Their child is, somehow, even more so. He deftly managed the rebuilding of a cargo net while still managing to sulk, as is the province of all teenagers. I am either in safe hands, or they are incredible actors. To the point, dying from their betrayal would still feel like an earned death. Though, I would rather find the glass and live to tell the tale. Day 5 25th Day of Warmth's Caress Left the city behind today. The roads grew empty except for the occasional passing caravan, pilgrim, or cart after we left the farm surrounding the city. We head inland, up an old road that follows one of the few rivers in the area. After two weeks of this, we will stop over at the woman's childhood village, resupply, and head into the depths of the desert. Day 15. Third Day of Sun Rule We near the village, but the entire family has grown silent and tense. Even I can feel it. There's something on the winds out here. Something is wrong. Day 19. Seventh Day of Sun Rule Illegible Scrawl Day 20. Eighth Day of Sun Rule I tried to write of this yesterday, but my pen had broken and charcoal always writes poorly and smudges out of legibility when logging travels such as this. I tried what I had heard of in adventure stories, but it turns out a fingertip makes a poor stylus and a pinprick wounds worth of blood even worse ink. We were correct that something had indeed gone wrong. The village has been abandoned some time in the past two years. Even among the nomads, they have been gone too long, and things were not secured properly as they would have done in a normal seasonal rotation. The doors had not been barred securely to keep out the wind and sand. Pots and pans were out by fires that burned out long ago. Blankets still on beds. The bucket hung halfway down the well. All tracks were gone. The others hope the village members are still alive. While it has been wrongly abandoned, there are no signs of battle. We even found valuables left unsecured, which no bandit would have left unfilched. I write now with an ornate pen that, I am told, can write what is spoken to it. Even make copies of recent items dictated to it. I use it as a normal pen for now. We have been in mostly silence for the last day, the conversations quick and hushed. The entire place feels wrong, still, and we do not want to disturb whatever force has taken this place. In our explorations, we were able to secure enough supplies to continue to the glass. 
It will be slow going as we must carry everything for three weeks. The week from here to where the nearest glass is located, the week spent there, and the week beyond that to Sapphire Falls, the larger city we'll be traveling to, we won't be able to return the way we came. Unfortunate from both a convenience perspective and because I will owe a small fortune to the Sun's Shores Harbor Master for minding my boat if I am to get it back at all, and it wasn't sold as abandoned within a week of my departure. The son of the family found the cause, we think, of the abandonment. While most of the village was unscarred, a section was burnt nearly to ash, stone buildings blackened, the sand in spots melted and shattered. The boy picked up something among the sand, handed it to me. A piece of glass, small, brittle, impure, and cloudy. I thanked him. He merely grunted and went back to searching the burnt area. The parents waited for him. They would not bring themselves to pass into the circle of huts that had been destroyed. Thus, it was only the boy and I who saw the burned bodies in one of the huts, covered in ash as a funeral shroud, still standing somehow. I dared not touch one. They looked as if they could blow away in the wind, scattered to nothingness. It took just a look between us to agree. We would claim the hut was empty and never speak of this within earshot of the rest of the family. Day 23, 11th day of sun rule. We grow close to the glass now, and my guides have regained some of their spirits. It is, I am assured, an incredible sight. I would hope so, having crossed the ocean to see it. Still, they need not worry. I am excited to the point of bursting. Day 27, 15th day of sun rule. A day later than expected due to the weight of our packs, but worth the wait. The glass is incredible to behold, as if the gods themselves made a perfect mirror for us to see their reflections in. It is 500 paces across and perfectly round. Sand has covered the edges in places, but that shape is still plain to see. The sun sparkles off and through it, blindingly bright. It is everything the stories said. It somehow transcends itself. The feeling will stay with me until my grave, I'm certain. I managed to turn falling to my knees in shock into a prayer. If my guides knew my deception to try and save myself embarrassment, they didn't say anything. And I prayed in earnest nonetheless. For this is a holy place of some sort. I am sure of that. I will explore the surface tomorrow walk the edges, sketch, though I do not know how I will capture it. Day 31, 19th day of sun rule. We must leave early and hurry. The boy was struck down in the night by some passing predator, bitten deep on his arm. The old man helped him fight it off, but the boy has grown feverish and the old man is quite wounded. The woman tended to their wounds but looks grim. I will carry the boy on my back. She will help keep her husband moving, taking the weight of his pack on her own back as I take the boy's. We will move continuously, 
even deep into the night. Three days hard, hard march will get us to the nearest temple of healers in the small city of Adaru, in time. I am certain of it. Day 33, 21st day of Sunrule. The boy's eyes are glassy and the old man grows weak from his wounds. The boy's arm was mangled by the creature and the veins on and surrounding his shoulder are turning a dark and angry red. Something, an infection or a toxin, I am not sure, traces through his blood vessels. It is well beyond my or the woman's knowledge to treat. Day 34, 22nd day of sun rule. We made it. The boy and the man are with the best healers, those who can work divine magic. They must work quickly, but are optimistic. Day 34, 22nd day of sun rule, later that same day. Not quick enough, it seems. The boy passed during the ceremony and prayers. The priests seem to think it was the will of their god, Puriel. But it is cold comfort to the man and his wife. The man has been healed, but his eyes are hollow and empty. He moves as if in a stupor. The healers assure us he is physically fine. The woman and I both believe them. But it cannot be denied he is unwell. Day 35, 23rd day of sun rule. We head back to the glass today. A cart and animals provided by the temple so we can provide the final rites to the boy and return his body to the sand rather than simply burn it here. It seems important to the woman. She said I did not need to go with her, that I had done enough, but I insisted. I do not want to leave this unfinished, and I believe she could use a friend and ally right now. Day 39 27th day of sun rule. We near the glass again, a couple days away. The man continues to shamble along. He eats little, drinks only sips until forced to down enough by his wife. In morning. Day 40, 28th day of sun rule. Late last night, I sat watch next to the embers of the fire when the old man came to me. He spoke to me of mortality, of age, of how, without his son, his wife will have nothing left of him when he is gone. I said she would have memories, but he let out a chuckle. A dark thing, ugly, sharp, and sad, and bitter. Memories fade, he said, as we all do. Our bodies turned to dust. But it is strange to think that those we love would let us turn to dust in their minds so easily after we go. I said that seemed a cynical thing to say. He said I was young, that I would not understand. But that I would someday. I bit back that I was half a century older than him. Humans take that poorly. He walked off before I could say anything else. I saw his eyes shining in the dark as he laid and looked up at the sky, where the stars spill across it denser than the mist at the base of a waterfall. Day 41, 29th day of sun rule. The old man passed away last night. 
His wife has a half memory of him saying he loved her into her ear, but when she woke, he was still, his eyes closed. It is profoundly disturbing in its own way to have seen someone die of a broken heart. The woman made it through turning a blanket into a shroud before breaking down at the last stitch. She cried for hours. After a while, I put an arm around her while she continued. Everyone deserves the steadying touch of another while they let go of a loved one. I would not say I was happy to provide it. The circumstances were too grim. But I am glad I was there all the same. Day 42, 30th day of sun rule. An eventful day in retrospect. We made it to the glass. The horses won't travel onto it, so we carried the bodies between us, one at a time, to the approximate center. It is slippery like ice, treacherous, and every step feels like you could glide for yards. But we managed, putting the boy and the man down beneath the sunny sky. The woman packed together a special sort of incense provided by the temple and put it in a bowl between her son and her husband. She instructed me to go wait at the camp, a little back from the edge, while she prayed. I put a hand on her shoulder before I left and went back to the horses. A few minutes later, I felt something change in the air. Every hair on my body stood up and the horses started to rear and buck against their reins. Some instinct shot through me and I took off at a sprint over the glass. Somehow I didn't fall. I shouted to the woman who turned and looked. Her face was calm, even as I shouted, too calm. One should perhaps not intercede in the affairs of the gods, but I did so all the same. I half-grabbed, half-tackled her, sending us both sliding away from her family at shocking speed across the glass. The air grew hot, painful, as we slid. When we made it to the edge of the glass, she was yelling at me, but I rolled to my feet on the sand and yanked her along with all of my might. We fell together into the loose sand of the dunes around the glass, not ten feet from the edge when it happened. A light, brighter than the sun, appeared as if from nowhere, a column stretching through the sky itself, rending the clouds, causing a great boom of thunder. I could gaze upon it only for a moment before I had to clamp my hand over my eyes. I believe I may have just briefly seen the face of a god. I also felt my clothing begin to burn, my skin blister, everything hurt, and the light was replaced by blackness, but not before my eyes fluttered open as I lay on the sand. I'd fallen at some point, and while I could not bring myself to move, I was able to see across the smooth expanse of glass. I saw the ash of the two bodies blow away on the wind, returning the boy and the father to the sand. Then, truly, the black took me. Day 49, fifth day of Shade's Desire I'm afraid that I was forced to write that last entry retroactively. As you can tell, I was in no state to write after that. Even now, 
back in the same small city where we tried to save the boy, I am recovering. The priests have healed me almost completely, but the woman is insisting on my spending additional time recuperating. In large part, so the burns that covered a huge part of my body leave minimal scars. The priests are cooperative, even though such earthly matters as appearance are usually beyond their purview. The magic in this pen is quite useful. My hands and arms are bound tight in bandages soaked in healing salves, so the dictation is the only method available to me. A small, personal miracle. The woman thanked me for stopping her from joining her husband and son just yet. She will remember them, she says, and be patient for the day she sees them again. I do not share her husband's words to me that night. Unnecessary. And not all things must be repeated in speech or in writing. Judicious care, in fact, should be taken. For every word we share helps to shape the story of the world, and that is a responsibility not to be taken lightly. I am tired now, and my voice is dry. My expedition is done. The log shall end here. I have much to think on from my trip to the glass. It would be best to get started. Day 59, 15th day of Shade's Desire. If you will permit me a small indulgence logbook, I have returned to note one last thing. I asked the woman what she would do now, and as we stood in the market of the port city of Sapphire Falls waiting to book passage back to Sun's Shores, she said she did not know. She did not think she would go to the desert again as a guide. I asked what she knew of the ocean. She said very little though it had always fascinated her. The life of sailors and pirates, travelers and merchants. I offered her passage on my ship. A job, actually. It is easier to pilot it with two. She accepted. She said she had heard that sailors took on new names. I had heard this only here in this city from her. It must be an A.E.N. tradition. I said as such and she said if it wasn't yet, she would start it now. I asked what name she would take. She said, without hesitation, Lalina. It's an Aeon Elvish name, somewhat archaic, that translates to the light of God. So I have gained a traveling companion of the highest caliber, it seems. She wishes to leave her old life behind, so I will strike her old name and those of her family members from these logs before they are ever reproduced or printed by her request. She will hold the memory of her family in her heart and not on the pages of the relative stranger who she now calls friend. Now, Log, I will truly leave you. I hope these scribblings are of use to others, but as a way for myself to remember, they are already enough. Editor's Note, 168th Printing The text has been presented as in the original printed version in its entirety. The publisher does not know Lolina's original name and would request that people stop writing us asking for it. These events happened hundreds of years ago as of this, the 168th printing. Some things are lost to the winds of time intentionally, 
and we respect the decision of the original author and the apparent wishes of Lalina herself. Not that we have a choice, because again, we don't know her original name. Please stop writing us about it. Keylandril, A Primer and Survey by Atsilla of the Oronel, Allied City-States, uses she-her pronouns, published 20 years before the launch. A note written in neat elven script on extremely high-quality paper is tucked in the front. Erosene. Elandril is a modern pronunciation of Keylandril that grew into popular use on the arcs. Many non-elvish tongues struggle with the leading key in elvish, especially if they did not grow up speaking the language, so it was simplified. I would argue they should simply have learned, but sadly I do not hold absolute authority over language and its use. You will see both used across texts, though note it's considered poor form to mix the two unless discussing linguistics or quoting different sources. Do not be mistaken. Both names refer to the same place. Do well with your studies. Signed, Frymeath. Introduction. Kilandral Geography. The continent of Kilandral was known for its dense spread of rivers sprouting from two crater lakes at the top of its highest mountains. From the top, when surrounded by the ocean, it almost looked like an eight from the human numbering system. Technically, Kilandral was settled by multiple peoples, but the elves always claimed to have had it first, and the name used certainly derives from their own language. Given the elves have the oldest records, it is hard to dispute otherwise, but human records from hundreds of years ago have an unfortunate tendency to be lost, especially when elvish claims of territory are involved. Footnote 1 See Goliath et al., a matter of convenience, territorial claims across cultures with greatly different median lifespans. It is perhaps fitting, then, that the elven kingdom spread throughout much of the continent refer to themselves as Keelandrillians. Chapter 3. Southern Lake Architecture The Keelandrillian elvish society is the oldest in the region, centered around the crater lake on the southern mountain, the larger and higher of the two. Surrounded by dense forest, the elvish architecture is designed to preserve as much of the forest as possible. Twisting silver spires sprout from relatively narrow bases, reaching above the canopy before they arch into bridges and skyways between the spires. From an outside perspective, it almost looks like the mountain itself is wearing a crown. There are, of course, numerous settlements among and even in the trees down below as well. The spires, while impressive, only have so much space in them, after all. These are more modest, made of wood derived primarily from local tree falls and stones quarried from the surrounding mountains. Care is taken to rise all buildings at least two feet above the ground to keep the forest floor free for creatures to roam and, more practically, to prevent any potential damage from flooding during years of heavy rainfall. 
Elaborate wood carvings are common on both the interiors and exteriors of the buildings below. Some of this has also made it to the Silver Towers, as something of an affectation from the lower levels. These are notable for often being made of the oldest hardwoods, which are considered extremely precious when they do fall. Preserving them in this way is considered making them something of a monument to the tree. Footnote 2 from Siliad G. Interior Decoration in Keelandrillian Cultures. Chapter 4. Societal Division. If you'll permit the author a bit of commentary, for all their claims of enlightenment, many elder societies seem quite insistent on there being a certain social hierarchy, and while the Keelandrillians claim to be more egalitarian than most, I don't see much of a difference. Now then, on to the bare facts. The Keelandrillians have an informal caste system, divided into five levels. The names are all elvish, of course, but roughly translate to those who walk among the brush, those who walk between the trees, those who are touched by sunrise, those who walk in the sky, and those who sit nearest the stars. As I'm sure the astute reader has guessed, this system is built in reference to the architecture of the capital city. Living on the forest floors was traditionally the realm of the lower classes, manual laborers, foresters, hunters, and the like. Those who lived in the trees were artisans, career soldiers, and minor merchants. Those at the bottom of the towers, but still above the trees, were more prominent merchants, military officers, highly skilled artisans that tended to work for those above, or in fine and expensive materials, and minor landowning houses that operated large forestry operations, or owned larger farms downslope that could support a family through profits alone. Those at the middle levels of the towers owned large businesses, were high-end merchants, military leaders, or had jobs of great societal cachet intellectually. Magicians and mages and wizards, the difference between these three is best left for another book. Teachers and academics, especially professors and deans, etc. Those who lived at the very top of the tower, and were considered to sit near the stars, were the most successful citizens. Political leaders, including those who retired in good standing. Families with businesses that ran across the country. Those who traded across the sea. Extremely wealthy artists who had, at least at some point, become the vogue in high society, etc. In practice, these castes are now very mixed in terms of location. The poorest servants will live at the top of the tower to be more easily available to those they serve. The richest folks will have cabins in the woods the size of small mansions that are intended to feel rustic so they can commune with nature. But the division remains. Elvish societies have long memories, and thus it becomes easy to remember where everyone belongs in the hierarchy. The castes are also mixed in terms of respect for each other. In theory, there is no law saying one who lives on the forest floor must obey the whims of those who live in the towers, unless those are government officials or others who wield official power to law and regulation. 
In practice, of course, economic factors are a mighty thing and can work as well as a strict hierarchical system of command. Then there are the tests to move between the castes. These are available to all and involve proving to a panel with one respected member of each caste that you have something to contribute that would warrant moving up in the world. Of course, those in the highest castes often have greater access to the sorts of training and resources that would allow them to do well here, but in theory, given their long lives, anyone has enough time to train themselves as needed. In practice, this is usually simply determined by money. A family's business holdings grow large enough they can ascend to another caste. Presenting one's wealth in verified numbers is considered an acceptable demonstration, rendering many of these panels nothing more than a formality. There are no strict cutoffs for the amount. From the author's observation, the finances of anyone in the middle or top of the tower would make the higher classes of most human societies flush with envy. The benefits of having hundreds of years to save, I suppose. There are those who ascend via talent alone, usually who were apprenticed to someone of a higher caste and trained in certain arts. Learning magic is an excellent way to skip up to that level, though apprenticeships can be difficult to find. Students who attend university, which is itself free, can also ascend directly to live in the bottom regions of the towers once they are awarded their graduation orbs. Footnote 3. The true origin of graduation orbs is poorly understood, but while they have not always been standard, they have become the de facto method of denoting degrees across the world. This is perhaps because of the difficulty in forging one, or even altering it, and their durability, which leads to issues when one's name is misspelled, but I digress. If they achieve a teaching or professorship on top of that, they will rise even higher. Particularly skilled artists can also impress with their work, with these also gaining a three-person panel of other artisans of that type to assist in the judging. These ascensions via talent are uncommon, though hardly impossible. However, just because one of the persons on the panel of your new class approved of you doesn't guarantee acceptance among those in your new cast. Many of those interviewed for this book disclosed that either they or an ancestor had struggled to gain acceptance. Marriages are another way to move between castes, as the higher caste of the two couples is one that's kept. Upper societal scandals from marrying below aside, it is a generally accepted practice. There are only so many fish in the lake, after all. There are numerous songs of a humbled forester catching the eye of a child of the highest societies, falling in love and marrying. And poems and novels. It was also disclosed to the author that many intimate relationships between those of wildly different castes may have started in part because of this potential, though the success rate was far lower than these tales might imply. Children born or adopted by a couple or group in wedlock inherit the caste of their parents. 
those born outside of such an official relationship are dealt a much shakier hand. In theory, they inherit the higher of their castes. In practice, however, it is fully possible for parents to disown their children. In this case, they would be part of the lower caste of the couple. It's considered tradition for the lower caste of the couple or group involved to get stuck with the bill, as it were. Disowning by both parents does happen, however, in which case the child is put up for adoption. Unlike the human orphanages of the author's home country, Keelandrillian orphanages are not considered to be places of shame, and usually provide good opportunities for their wards who don't end up taken in by another individual or family. The children are technically of the lowest caste, but often are able to get into the university or apprenticed to an artisan, or otherwise launched into a place where they might have the opportunity to ascend to some place at least above the forest floor. It isn't unheard of for a couple to give their newborn up for adoption, for the chance of a better life. Races and species beside the elves are treated as existing outside of the caste system, especially those only residing in Keelandril temporarily. The elvish version of temporary can encompass several generations of another races or species, peoples, admittedly. This is not to say that there isn't a proper place for individuals of these groups. Again, in practice, money is a large factor, as is occupation in general. There is little work for a mercenary adventurer that would have them do more than visiting the towers to receive their orders, much less entitle them to a living place there. Marrying into elvish society grants them the rank of their spouse, but only while their spouse is alive and married to them. Caste is not maintained for non-elves after divorce. They can also be sponsored by a member of a caste with the same rules. Simply swap sponsor for marry and disown for divorce, and you'll more or less have it. Children continue to inherit the caste of their parents by the rules previously outlined. The social safety net itself is stratified as well. If one falls on hard times, you are granted your basic needs according to your caste. Public housing is much more extravagant in the towers, and the food much better. The author didn't realize they'd visited one such public house until its occupant's living situation was commented on with a snide remark at a party. It appeared, to the author's human eyes, to be a well-appointed apartment similar to what an upper-class individual might keep in a human city where space was at a premium. Meanwhile, those who live on the forest floor are given single rooms with rough-hewn furniture. Having stayed in both over the course of writing this book as an official visiting chronicler, the author would recommend the housing in the tower. The beds are much more comfortable. Chapter 7. Governing Systems The Keelandrillian government is an altered form of democracy. The caste system is granted consideration in all versions historically, though the method of implementation has changed over the years. Of course, like most elven governments, Keelandril was once a monarchy. Footnotes 4 and 5. Footnote 4. Milus, H. 
the rise and fall of elvish monarchies and how they might rise again. Footnote 5. There are still monarchies among the elves, but they are uncommon, especially compared to their rates among the other species and races, humans, dwarves, etc. Additionally, there are monarchies in name only, where the monarchs play primarily ceremonial role, are are only used when the main government is split between two options to make a final decision and break the tie. Over the course of thousands of years, the occasional bloody revolt switched one ruling family for another, and eventually convinced them to change systems entirely, mostly when the final king's head was tossed into the crowd, and the person doing the tossing declared that there would be no more kings. This was quite a surprise to the people of Kilandril, who were much more used to the head-tosser becoming new monarch, but not an unpleasant one. This happened so long ago that the details are sketchy at best, and the author suspects that some of the details, such as which cast the leader of the revolution actually belonged to, have been lost to history. The cast of that initial leader is relevant because the first version of democracy accounted for the caste system simply by giving each member of a given caste a number of votes equal to their level. Those on the forest floor counted for one vote each. Those in the highest caste had five. This, of course, put disproportionate power in the hands of the uppermost classes, due to the fact that each caste tends to be smaller than the one below it in terms of population, the damage this can cause was somewhat mitigated, but not entirely. Populations of all types waxed and waned, and it was very much felt when members of the highest castes were in a period of having larger families for whatever reason. There were even rumors that individuals were adopted or sponsored into a higher caste to manipulate possible vote totals, though no one I spoke to could substantiate them. Eventually another, more minor, revolution happened, in that the bottom three castes voted as an overwhelming block to change the way things worked in terms of one small detail. Every caste now has the same number of votes. Not the individuals, mind you, but the caste themselves. So, both the bottommost and topmost castes have 20% of the final vote on an issue, regardless of population. That 20% is subdivided based on the split of votes among individuals within that caste, with each person of adult age receiving a single vote. All major civic matters, from primary leaders to taxes and tariffs, are decided by this democratic system. A voting day is set aside every two months to accommodate the sheer number of items voted upon, though some elections will be skipped if there's nothing to vote on, and emergency votes are done when needed, such as when mobilizing for war. Votes are collected by trusted members of each community, who are themselves voted upon. Alongside them, a randomly chosen member of the community is set to double-check their count on the votes. Only once both parties concur on the final number is the total sent upstream often quite literally, to decide the election. Votes are collected by ward within the capital city, and by town and then region for any outlying areas. Processing a vote can take weeks, though great pains are taken to increase efficiency whenever possible. Not all issues are sent to every citizen, of course. 
towns and regions have their own issues, and those are voted upon only by those inside those regions. The end. Here ends Kilandro the Primer, and here ends the episode. We'll see you all next week. Take care, everybody. Primary Attribute has been imagined and brought to life by the people you've heard. For more information about the podcast, check out our website, primaryattribute.com. For questions, comments, and feedback, email us at letters at primaryattribute.com. Follow us on social media. You can find us at facebook.com slash primaryattributepod, on Twitter at primeattribute, and at primaryattribute.tumblr.com for all of our dankest, blazest posts. Castles and Crusades is published by Troll Lord Games. Our theme music was composed by Aaron. Our logo was designed by Adam. This week's editor was Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in next time to Primary Attribute. caste system is granted consideration. The caste system is granted consideration in all versions, historically, through 